They're restricting the vote in the South. They're recounting the vote in Arizona, only six months later. And they're pushing Liz Cheney out from the House leadership. What we need is a round of truth vaccinations on the political junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, and Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 364 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. One wonders, in looking at the enormous programs President Biden is trying to initiate and push through Congress, whether the Democrats feel a sense of urgency. The short answer is yes, for several reasons. The pandemic has brought havoc to millions of Americans, costing lives and health and homes and and livelihood and everything else that goes with it. After four years of neglect, Biden knows that America is not going to get back on track without major government help. Politically, it is always smart to go big early, especially when the problems are big. Hence, a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan to make sure vaccines are reaching everyone. Then came a $2.3 trillion American jobs plan with much focus on the country's infrastructure needs. None of this will be easy. First, there's the unwillingness of Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell to work with Biden and the Democrats. 100% of our focus is on stopping this new administration. In addition to United Republican opposition, Democrats have their own independent-minded senators to be concerned with, such as Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. More about them later in the program. Another problem staring them in the face is the narrowness of the Democratic majority in Congress. It's only 50-50 in the Senate, and the Democrats have only a five-seat advantage in the House. Plus, the 2022 midterm elections are rapidly approaching. New redistricting suggests that Republicans will have the advantage with GOP-leaning states such as Texas, Florida, and North Carolina gaining new seats in the next Congress. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has made it clear he would rather parrot Donald Trump's assertion that the election was stolen rather than stand up to the former president's lies. And Republicans in state after state are passing or trying to pass laws curtailing the vote. Now you know why Biden, in trying to go big, has to go fast. A lot of campaign news lately. Republicans are picking their gubernatorial nominee in Virginia this weekend. Ohio Democrats Tim Ryan, a congressman who briefly sought the presidency last year, announced for the Senate, and Nan Whaley, the mayor of Dayton, declared her candidacy for governor. In Georgia, Doug Collins, the former Republican congressman who finished third in last year's special Senate race, said he will not take on incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock next year. And Congressman Charlie Crist, a Florida Democrat, 
announced he will challenge GOP Governor Ron DeSantis in 2022. Chris is also a former Republican governor. And that leads to this week's trivia question. Who was the last person elected governor as a Democrat and also as a Republican? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous vintage Political Junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. There was a time when the Republican Party had an opportunity to break free from the influence of Donald Trump. It was in the aftermath of January 6th, when a mob of people convinced Joe Biden had stolen the election and egged on by Trump, invaded the Capitol and ransacked many offices. It was a situation that led to a second impeachment and the predictable acquittal in the Senate. In the House vote to impeach the president, 10 Republicans joined all 222 Democrats finding Trump guilty. Among the House Republicans was Liz Cheney, the representative from Wyoming, who was the number three Republican in the House leadership. At the time, Cheney only offered a written statement, but we have a reporter from NBC News who helpfully gives us an idea of what she had to say. The president of the United States summoned this mob, assembled this mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the president. The president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. There has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office office and his oath to the Constitution. I will vote to impeach the president. But the rest of the GOP conference did not follow Cheney's lead. While she survived a vote in February to dump her from their leadership, the secret vote tally was 145 to 61, anger towards her has never abated. And neither did her attacks on Trump. Here she was last month on CBS's Face the Nation. And I will continue to fight for all of the issues that matter so much to us all across Wyoming, that we will not forget what happened on January 6th. The single greatest threat to our republic is a president who would put his own self-interest above the Constitution, above the national interest. You know, we've had a situation where President Trump claimed for months that the election was stolen and then apparently set about to do everything he could to steal it himself. Uh, And that ended up in an attack on the Capitol. Uh, Five people killed that day. Uh, That's the kind of attack that can never happen again. Our institutions held, uh, but we all have an obligation to make sure that they continue to do so. This did not go over well, not with Trump and not with House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who is making it clear he wants Cheney gone. Here he was earlier this month on Fox News. There's no concern about how she voted on impeachment. That decision has been made. I have heard from members concerned about her ability to carry out the job as conference chair, to carry out the message. We all need to be working as one if we're able to win the majority. Even more revealing was this comment by McCarthy, caught on a hot mic. I think she's got real problems. I, 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 I've had it with I've had it with her. It's, you know, I, I've lost confidence. So it seems clear that Cheney's days in the leadership are numbered. The guess is that when Congress returns next week, Republicans will remove Cheney and replace her with Elise Stefanik, 
an upstate New York Republican who has made it clear that she buys into all of Trump's lies. Tens of millions of Americans are rightly concerned that the 2020 election featured unprecedented voting irregularities, unconstitutional overreach by unelected state officials and judges ignoring state election laws, and a fundamental lack of ballot integrity and ballot security. To the tens of thousands of constituents and patriots across the country who have reached out to me in the past few weeks, please know that I hear you. The most precious foundation and covenant of our republic is the right to vote, and consequently, the faith in the sanctity of our nation's free and fair elections. As a member of Congress, I am committed to restoring the faith of the American people in our elections that they are free, fair, secure, and according to the United States Constitution. If there is a message here, it's that this is Donald Trump's party. And if you have any interest in prolonging your political career, you don't cross him or criticize him or else. Jack Pitney is a politics professor at Claremont McKenna College and who has great insight into Republican politics. Jack, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Thank you very much. Well, I have a question. I mean, back in February, when the House Republican Conference seemed more interested in the committee assignments of Marjorie Taylor Greene, but the question of Liz Cheney's loyalty came before the members. And I, I, I thought they basically settled it, you know, 145 to 61 but it wasn't settled. What changed? What changed is Donald Trump continued to stay in the equation. Uh, Donald Trump has not gone quietly. He has not uh, uh, retreated to San Clemente uh, as Richard Nixon did. Uh, instead, he continues, notwithstanding his ban from Twitter, he continues to uh, weigh in. Now, uh, Trump is banned from Twitter. Uh, that was his main uh, platform. And now uh, he's continuing to demand total loyalty. A large number of Republicans have gone down to uh, bend the knee at Mar-a-Lago, starting with Kevin McCarthy himself. And uh, that's an indication that Republicans see that uh, total loyalty to Trump is uh, the price of membership in the party today. I remember there was some indication around January 6th, around the rebellion, that Kevin McCarthy had had enough with Trump that he felt that the former president was hurting the party, and that he stood behind Cheney. And then the next thing you know, as you say, the two of them are shown smiling together at Mar-a-Lago. So, so much for that backing of Liz Cheney. Yeah, I, uh, I'm sure he's heard from Trump. He's heard from the people around Trump. And most important, he and the other Republicans have heard from the uh, Trump supporters in the Republican electorate. And the polls indicate uh, that that support really hasn't wavered. Uh, the core Republican supporters are still as enthusiastic for Trump as they were before, and they will punish anybody who uh, doesn't go along. Is the likely dropping of Cheney from the leadership a signal that this is plain and simple Donald Trump's party and you just don't criticize him, especially if you hope to keep your job, right? That's right. And what's important is this is all about personality. It's not about policy, because if you look at policy, Liz Cheney has a much stronger pro-Trump conservative voting record than Elise Stefanik. If you were just voting on what their stands on the issues were, you'd uh, Republicans, conservative Republicans, would have to go along with Liz Cheney. Is it now a party orthodoxy that the 2020 election was determined by fraud and theft? I mean, is that is that part of the Republican platform? 
Uh, yes, and uh, in the early days of this controversy, people were quoting George Orwell's 1984 uh, about uh, uh, loyalty to the party meant denying the reality before your eyes. Initially, I thought that was an exaggeration that you know people were just stretching it for uh, literary effect. No, that's literally the truth. You have to deny <laughs> reality. Uh, in order to be considered a loyal Republican, and that's a very disturbing development. You know, you mentioned earlier San Clemente, which obviously was a reference to Richard Nixon. But you know, when you think of the end of Nixon, when when Republican leaders went to the White House, Barry Goldwater, Hugh Scott, John Rhodes, uh, and told him that the gig was up. That is obviously not what's happening now. Even even though there are serious federal investigations aimed at Trump. Even as his top lawyer has been has had his phone seized by the FBI, Republicans are not willing to make the break. Yeah, and that's really extraordinary. I, I teach a course on Nixon. In fact, we just covered the uh, the Goldwater Rhodes Scott meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, very different political environment. A number of Republicans were willing to break with uh, with Nixon very openly, very early. James Buckley of New York elected as a conservative party candidate. Uh, was the first uh, major figure in the party to call on uh, on Nixon to resign. And uh, now we have a situation where Republicans who had to hide in their offices, whose lives were being threatened by the mob that Trump sent, saying, okay, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll let him get away with it. Uh, and that is really extraordinary and, um, and a very disturbing sign about the Republican Party and not a very good sign for the future of American democracy. You know, I was just thinking, um, as the mob is, was yelling, uh, hang Pence, you know, hang Mike Pence, Pence has since come out with a, a statement or a book, I don't even remember what it is, but it's basically saying how great the, the four years under Donald Trump was and how great of a leader Donald Trump was. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, to uh, use another analogy, it's like an abusive relationship. The Republicans uh, were in physical danger, and yet they still support the person who created that danger. Uh, it's really hard to think of anything like this in American political history. The Republican Party has gone to a very dark place. You know, one of the few Republican senators who have publicly stood up for Cheney is Mitt Romney, uh, you know, certainly no fan of Trump's, and he was one of the seven Republicans who voted to convict him during impeachment. This is the reception Romney got last weekend at the Utah Republican Convention. Now, you know me as a person who, uh, who says what he thinks, and I don't hide the fact that I wasn't a fan of our last president's character issues. And I'm also no fan... Not only were they not embarrassed, but uh, the Salt Lake Tribune reported that Romney was met with, in, in addition to the booze, shouts calling him a traitor and a communist. Uh, I mean, I, look, they, they tried to censure him. The vote failed. But still, this is Orwellian, I guess, or bizarro world or something. Yeah, this is, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. This is bizarro world, the opposite uh, Trump incited an insurrection against his own government. Trump was the one whose uh, campaign chair shared 
inside information, as we now know, with a Russian agent. And yet the people who criticize him are called traitors and communists. That is absolutely uh, black as white, up as down. You know, Jack, I'm wondering if if the list of Republicans who voted for impeachment might have been larger had there not been the fear that Trump would campaign against them in 2022. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, I, I'm sure that's true. I, a lot of this is simply driven by fear. The number of Republicans who actually believe what they're saying uh, is is relatively small. Most of them are not that disturbed. Uh, but uh, the fact that they think they have to uh, mouth these lies, to put it bluntly, uh, is a sign of their fear. And uh, it's somebody like Liz Cheney is a true profile in courage. In my Congress course uh, this past week, we read excerpts from Profiles in Courage. And if JFK were writing a book like that today covering uh, both chambers of Congress, um, Liz Cheney would be very high on that list. Or if Theodore Sorensen was writing the book, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right. You know something, when, you, when I look at Liz Cheney, I mean, look, as you pointed out, one of the most conservative members of the House, uh, she just won't let Trump lie about the election. But she has to know, she has to know that by continuing to criticize Trump, she's jeopardizing her political future, not only in Washington, but back home in Wyoming, where I guess her main primary opponent will obviously be backed by Trump. As you said, she, you know, she deserves praise for her courage, but it could cost her her career. That's right, and that's exactly why she would uh, deserve a place in a, in a new version of Profiles in Courage. Kennedy wrote about people who took uh, positions that they knew full well uh, would uh, put their uh, political careers in danger. And in her case, it's really extraordinary. Some of her Republican critics are saying, well, she can just go on MSNBC. No, she's, she is a very conservative Republican named Cheney. She knows perfectly well she's not going to be a favorite of the people who love MSNBC either. Um, so I, uh, to use another uh, literary quotation, the, the final line of Henrik Ibsen's play, uh, An Enemy of the People, is, um, uh, the strongest man in the world is he who stands most alone, and in this case, the strongest woman in the world. Well the strongest woman in the Republican House leadership looks like it's going to be Elise Stefanik. Um, I kind of, you know, I kind of remember her when she was first elected in 2014. She was a moderate Republican, uh, and, and I think she was mild, even mildly critical of Trump in 2016. Now there's just no daylight between the two of them. Yeah, and it's really disappointing. Uh, it's really disappointing to see uh, somebody who looked like she would be part of the future of the Republican Party. Um, and uh, people are drawing uh, uh, analogies to um, the Faust, uh, selling one soul for the sake of temporary political advantage. And uh, if she were to read uh, various literary stories of people who sold their soul to the devil, it never ends well. And, uh, you know, at least Stefanik might have a, a temporary advantage, but I don't think... Uh, that uh, when she's uh, older and looks back on her career, that she's going to be very proud of this year. But there's no doubt in your mind that come next week, she will be the number three Republican in the House, right? It seems likely right now. Uh, with leadership elections, I've been around uh, a bit. Um, you never can tell for sure, but uh, the, the signs indicate that uh, the, the Republicans are going to 
uh, follow Trump and uh, pick Stefanik over Cheney, which is deeply unfortunate. Jack Pitney is a politics professor at Claremont McKenna College. His most recent book is entitled Un-American, The Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump. Jack, it was great having you on the show. Thank you very much. There you stood on the edge of your feather Expecting to fly Well, I laughed, I wondered whether I could wait It's not often the Senate is evenly divided between the parties. If I'm not mistaken, it's happened only twice in the past 60 years. In 2000, George W. Bush may have won the presidency, but the Republicans wound up losing four seats in the Senate, leaving the body tied at 50-50. Republicans, of course, had a nominal majority, thanks to the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Dick Cheney. But that lasted just four-plus months. Jim Jeffords, the liberal Republican from Vermont, did not like the approach the Bush administration was taking on issues like tax cuts and education spending. And by June of 2001, he had had enough. Increasingly, I find myself in disagreement with my party. In order to best represent my state of Vermont, my own conscience and principles I have stood for my whole life, I will leave the Republican Party and become an independent. It was a historic move. By becoming an independent and voting to organize with the Democrats, Jim Jeffords became the first person in Senate history whose party switch decided which party would become the majority and which the minority. It was a seismic shift in politics. But something else happened. No longer did anyone care about Jim Jeffords. Perhaps, had he stayed in the GOP, he could have put forward some demands that would have made him the Senate's true power broker. But once he quit the Republicans, he was yesterday's news. As it turned out, the Democratic Senate majority was gone in the next election. Twenty years later, we have another 50-50 Senate. And because we have a Democratic president and a tie-breaking Democratic vice president, it's a Democratic Senate. And this year's Jim Jeffords is not about to switch parties. He's not about to make himself irrelevant and forgotten. He's Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democrat, who has made it clear that he will fight for the things he believes in, such as Senate tradition, Senate bipartisanship, and Senate rules, just like his predecessor, the late Robert Byrd. By making his views clear on issues like the filibuster and background checks for gun purchases and raising the minimum wage, Manchin has become the most significant member of the Senate, And because everyone knows that Democrats must keep him happy in a 50-50 Senate, he wields great power. 
but at the same time, he's driving the Democrats crazy. Norm Ornstein is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a longtime observer and expert on Congress. Norm, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. It's terrific to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. And, you know, I guess in a 50-50 Senate, with such a delicate majority, anyone who stands up to his or her party on issues he holds dear is, by definition, a real power broker. Do you agree with the assessment that Joe Manchin holds enormous power in the 117th Congress? Oh, I think there's no question that Manchin holds tremendous power. But your larger point is uh, a key one as well. If it's 50-50 and you know from the get-go that on almost everything of significance, there will be zero Republican votes for you, every single one of those 50 Democrats holds, uh, at least in theory, enormous power. And the question becomes, which of those Democrats wants to use that power? Uh, At this point, it's Manchin. And uh, what's been interesting in a couple of ways is, first, that those progressives, the very liberal members of the Senate, uh, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, uh, as it were, uh, hasn't raised uh, its uh, voice or said, uh, unless I get X, I'm not voting with you. There's been a tremendous amount of discipline there in general. And Manchin, therefore, has become a kind of swing voter, the one whose vote you know you need, but who's been willing to speak up and say, I don't like this, I want uh, that. And that's given him uh, a tremendous amount of leverage. Having said that, there's a price to be paid for that. And one of the things that I found most interesting, Ken, is if you really read between the lines of the piece that Manchin wrote in the Washington Post uh, on the filibuster, saying, I will not vote to end the filibuster or weaken the filibuster, which a lot of people took as just 100%, there will be no change. I read it differently. I read it as, I need to get these people off my back. They're putting tremendous pressure on me. I'm the one who becomes the focus. Every interview I get, uh, that's the question that's been asked. And if I do this now, they're going to stop asking me as much. It doesn't mean that he won't be willing to compromise in some fashion, but I think he's getting a little bit tired of uh, having this focus, which can be a burden as well as a, a, a power center. But let me go back to an earlier important point that you just raised and talked about I mean, initially, we thought that in in addition to fighting off Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, uh, Joe Biden was going to have a tough time dealing with, as you say, the more progressive members of his party, the Bernie Sanders, the um, uh, Elizabeth Warrens, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes. And yet, as you say, these progressives have, for the most part, stayed in line, stayed, you know, has not given the Democrats and Joe Biden any problems. It's the centrist. It's Joe Manchin. It's Kirsten Sinema. It's kind of a, a, a conflict that I don't think Biden and the Democrats envisioned from the beginning. No, I, I think you're exactly right, that the anticipation was that uh, the challenge would come from the left. And that's partly because Biden has never in his career been uh, identified as somebody who's in the left wing of his party. He's been more center left. Now, I think there are two ways of looking at this. 
One is, uh, and we've seen a lot written about this, that Biden has surprised an awful lot of people by putting forward a quite remarkably ambitious and aggressive program that meets a lot of the tests of the left. And he's done that not just with rhetoric, but with the proposals that we've had. And let's keep in mind that Manchin and the others uh, who we would view as moderates or centrists in the Democratic Party all went along with this quite remarkable rescue package that included not just these checks going to a lot of individuals and money to support uh, ending the pandemic, but also uh, a child credit that will, uh, by most standards, cut child poverty in half. These are things that progressives love, and we see a lot of that in the uh, infrastructure plus package that we have out there as well. I think there's a second explanation for this, which is that for an awful lot of people on the left, there is a recognition that the Republicans are going to give them no support and that if there isn't a willingness to get what they can right now, then you're going to be back in a situation where somebody younger and perhaps tougher than Donald Trump emerges as a potential president but also where everything will grind to a halt, a screeching halt, after the 2022 midterm elections if Democrats are not able to demonstrate that they've gotten something done. And that may be less on the mind of a Joe Manchin than it is of an Elizabeth Warren. I'm thinking that the, the, the very the very thin Democratic control of Congress uh, could easily disappear after next year's elections. Uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona could lose. Uh, Raphael Warnock in, in Georgia could lose. And so the idea is to get big things done now, you know, do big things now because tomorrow may be too late. I assume there has to be, there has to be Democrats who are reminding Manchin that you know, it's now or never, given the given the impending realization of the 2022 midterms. And, you know, there's a delicacy to this, though, as well. Um, you mentioned uh, early on uh, the case of Jim Jeffords. Um, I will say that one of my prouder moments came when I wrote a column in Roll Call weeks before Jeffords switched parties, warning Republicans that if they push too hard, uh, they were going to end up with an outcome that would be not very desirable, namely uh, a switch in party. And I've made the same uh, comment to Democrats in the Senate uh, that you can't be uh, too harsh on Manchin. You can't threaten him too much, because if you do, you could end up with Ron Johnson running investigations of uh, the Biden uh, administration with a uh, Republican Party in the majority and Mitch McConnell setting the agenda, none of your judicial nominations or the rest of your executive nominations going through, and your whole agenda brought to a halt. So they've got to be a little bit careful here with Manchin. But at the same time, there is a sense of urgency that Democrats feel, an understanding that if they don't accomplish a lot of things in this Congress before the 2022 elections emerge, they may not get anything more done. And at the same time, we know that we've got all of these states, Georgia, Iowa, Florida, 
Texas, many others, moving to pass really harsh voter suppression laws that will make it difficult for Democrats to prevail and keep their majorities in 2022, and that they've got to do something on the voting rights front probably within the next six months uh, if they're going to have an impact on 2022, and that to do that uh, is going to mean some changes in the Senate rules. And what they also know is, and uh, Chuck Schumer has said this pretty directly, it's not just Manchin, it's also Kristen Sinema who said she won't change the filibuster rule because we've got to have bipartisanship. What they have to do is to try to demonstrate to Manchin and Sinema within the next month or two that uh, that's not going to happen. My suggestion to Democrats in the Senate has been bring up not the H.R. 1 or S. 1, the sweeping and broad democracy reform package right away, bring up the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, keeping in mind, for example, that Chuck Grassley, among others, and a number of other Republicans in the Senate, co-sponsored the Voting Rights Act that uh, the Shelby County decision in the Supreme Court eviscerated, uh, show that they're not going to go along with anything reasonable. Bring up not those uh, gun bills that pass the House, which are more sweeping in terms of uh, background checks and other things, but bring up the Manchin-Toomey bill that had bipartisan support that was filibustered before and see if you can get 60-plus votes for that. If you can demonstrate on things where there's been bipartisan cooperation that it isn't there anymore, you're going to have at least a little bit of leverage to get some change in behavior and attitude by Manchin, Cinema, and others who might be roadblocks to anything you want to do otherwise. But when you talk about roadblocks, we're also seeing a very united Republican front. And basically, I mean, have you seen anything that Mitch McConnell has said that makes you think that Republicans are seeking bipartisanship? Do you think there's anything that Biden and the Democrats could propose that would attract 10 Republican votes to get to 60? I mean, that's, it's a very uh, disciplined Republican minority. So what we know uh, is, and it's very clear and history shows us, going back to the first two years of Bill Clinton's administration, but also what we saw starkly and clearly in the Obama presidency, is Republicans have a strategy. They've made it explicit. And the strategy is to unite in opposition to everything that the president wants, of great significance at least. Vote unanimously against it, decry his lack of bipartisanship, and delegitimize whatever they're able to get through otherwise. And that worked like a charm. It won them the House in 1994. It won them the House in 2010. It won them the Senate in 2014. It would be ridiculous to imagine they would try anything different. We know they're not serious about compromise. Maybe we'll get a compromise on a uh, criminal justice package, police reform, things that are a little bit below the radar um, and you know aren't going to have a big impact on their larger strategy. But when it comes to the big things, we're not going to get Republican votes. There's no way you'll get 10 or more of those in the Senate, much less any votes in the House. Let me just go back one quick question about one thought about uh, Jim Jeffords, because I thought about him a lot uh, in preparing for this interview. Do you think, though, that once he agreed to switch parties, no one cared about him anymore? 
Um, I don't think that that's really the case um, because, you know, we were still talking about the slenderest of majorities for Democrats. And I think he actually had uh, some leverage as uh, an independent after he switched. Before he switched, the Republican attitude was, we are going to beat everybody into submission. Uh You know, the final straw, if you think back on what happened with Jeffords, um, which was done by the Bush administration, they had a, a celebration of the teacher of the year. And remember, Jeffords was the education guy right. in the Senate. The teacher of the year was from Vermont, and they did not invite Jeffords to the ceremony at the White House. Wow. Uh, and we had other issues involving dairy supports, which obviously mattered deeply to him. Their whole modus operandi was to threaten and humiliate him into submission. And if you knew Jim Jeffords at all, you knew that wasn't going to work and it was going to backfire. But there was a level of arrogance there, and they paid uh, the price for it. You know, we're seeing a similar process, of course, being uh, undertaken today by Republicans in the House with Liz Cheney. Um, This is not the behavior of a political party with pragmatism and sensitivity. Um, It's more of a cult-like kind of thing. Um, For Jeffords, it backfired, and Jeffords, after he switched parties, had more leverage than he did uh, before. Uh, now, I think Democrats would be crazy to try the same thing either with Manchin or with Cinema, who's getting enormous flack and pressure from her own left in Arizona, um, which is a growing force in Arizona, of course. But with people like that who know they're savvy politicians, Cinema and Manchin, you don't get elected as Democrats in West Virginia or Arizona without being pretty savvy. And they know that they have significant leverage here. It's not that they would become Republicans necessarily, but even becoming independents moves this to a very different dynamic. So it's a delicate process that has to be followed by Democrats now, one that they should have learned from the ham-handed way in which Republicans dealt with Jeffords. But Manchin has to know how important a Voting Rights Act is to the Democrats and, and Joe Biden. He, uh, and he says, you know, the federal government has no business getting involved in election law. Um, and liberals will say this, you know, there's no greater priority. How do, you, how do you convince a Joe Manchin? How do you handle a Joe Manchin? I know, you know, he was once governor and he had all the power in the world uh, when he was governor of West Virginia. Uh, and he's, he has said in the past that he's frustrated by the way the Senate works or doesn't work, but but there, there, he, he has to know. I mean, he's he's, dem- he's a Democrat for a reason. Probably he was a Democrat back when <laughs> there were no Republicans at all yeah. in West Virginia. But but the fact is that these are priorities. You know, as you point out, the states, you know, the the, the Georgias and the Texases and the Arizonas and the Michigans, all the states that are trying to cut back on voting rights. He has to know how important that is, not only for the party, but I would say for for democracy. And that, I think the latter point is a, is a particularly key one. This isn't just about Democrats. It really is about the fundamentals of democracy. So, you know, Manchin, I think, would support, certainly support the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. He's made it clear that there are parts of H.R. 1, S. 1, including the campaign finance side, that he's not comfortable with. And I think it would be a mistake for Democrats to bring up the full uh, package uh, because they're not going to get 50 votes for it. 
You know, going back, if you look at the way in which uh, the Democrats in the Senate handled the $15 minimum wage, you know, turning it over to the uh, parliamentarian who said it's not uh, uh, something you can do through reconciliation, and then saying, well, gee, we're going to have to go in a different direction. Some of that was a pretty sophisticated and subtle uh, way of uh, having an excuse for not bringing up something that wasn't going to get 50 votes. So the goal here is to find what you can do with 50 votes. And that's going to mean some horse trading with Manchin and probably others. Cinema, of course, has been a full-throated uh, uh, proponent and co-sponsor of S1. Um, but you've still got to find a way to change the rules to make that happen. And the question is more uh, at right now how you get beyond the obdurate uh, viewpoint that they have towards the filibuster. You know, for Manchin, he has what I would say is a misguided notion. First of all, he occupies the seat that was held for five decades and more by Robert Byrd. Um, he has a veneration for Byrd, as almost everybody in West Virginia does, but he has, a, I think, a misguided view of Byrd's approach to the filibuster. The fact is that Byrd over and over adjusted the rules to get uh, what he needed done. He didn't want to eliminate it. And you can't look at this as we're going to eliminate the filibuster. But what they can do with Manchin, I believe, ultimately, is to say we want to restore the filibuster to what it was supposed to be. It was not supposed to be a burden for the majority. It was supposed to be a burden for the minority that felt so intensely about something that they would pay a heavy price to uh, keep uh, the focus on an issue to try and change the public to their point of view. And so, you know, for years, my uh, approach to this has been flip the numbers around instead of 60 votes required to stop debate, make it 41 votes required to continue debate put the burden on the minority. And I think ultimately you might be able to get him to be able to agree to that. And if you can get him to agree to that, and of course that they have to be on the floor talking and talking about the subject at hand, uh, germanely. Jimmy Stewart, right? Yeah, the, uh, the Jimmy Stewart, the so-called talking filibuster. And then they've got to be there at all hours of the night and day. And they're going to have to be there on the Fridays and the Mondays where they might be in session. Now, if you accomplish that goal, or even if you get the narrower focus on, you know, Congress has in the Constitution the direct responsibility over elections, regulating the time, manner, and place of federal elections, get an exception to the filibuster for that. There are different ways of going about this. You're still obviously going to have to get them to go along with a package. That package is not going to be the totality of H.R. 1 or S. 1. But you've got to get a number of things in place that protect our democracy against Jim Crow laws. And even, you know, if, if, uh, the Georgia law, which uh, is bad in many respects and which tries to disguise its attempt to discourage voting by minorities uh, in Georgia. But the worst part of that is basically giving partisan officials the ability to overturn the results of an election if they don't like it. If this Georgia law had been in place last year, you very likely would have seen the Georgia legislature uh, overturning the Biden victory there.
And, of course, much of this Georgia law is aimed at blocking Raphael Warnock from winning uh, re-election in 2022. He has to be up again. Um, these are, you know, very pernicious laws. And what they're trying to do in Texas and Florida is in many ways uh, as bad or worse. We know that they've got kind of model statutes that are being spread around by ALEC and other groups to try to accomplish the goal. And the goal is the, to have Republicans win elections even when they don't win elections. Norm Ornstein is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and an expert on Congress. He's the author of many books, including One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. Norman, it was great having you on the program. Uh, thanks very much. And uh, one thing, Ken, I am now an emeritus scholar. Uh, I will fix that. I will okay. fix that. But you're also a scholar on the political junkie. Yes. Uh, and and uh, and delighted to be with uh, the great scholar Ken Rudin on the political junkie. Norm, thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. And remember, with Father's Day fast approaching, can you think of a better gift than a Political Junkie t-shirt and socks? Just asking. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe. I'll see you soon.